from Studio P in Sausalito, the home of the hit, it's time for... Suckatash. Yes, Suckatash Chats, the original comedy soundcast featuring interviews from comedy... Soundcast. Soundcasters, comedians, comedian soundcasters, and other showbiz folks. And here's your host, internationally recognized comedy soundcast soundcaster, Mark Hershaw. Howdy, friends, and our announcer, Bill Haywatt, doesn't lie. It's me, Mark Hershon, your host and buttery Chardonnay for Epi 142 of Succotash, the comedy soundcast, soundcast. Now, I thought we were going to do a Succotash Clips episode this time around because the bag of clips we have from comedy podcasts or soundcasts is overflowing. But I managed to get an interview just this weekend with two of the main movers and shakers behind one of my favorite podcasts, so I figured we'd trot out another edition of Succotash Chats. Before I go any further, if you happen to hear any weird noises like I'm recording this on the side of a major thoroughfare, it's because I'm Recording this on the side of a major thoroughfare. (laughs) I'm parked comfortably in Studio F, my Fiat, and normally I do this at night when there's no no traffic around, but I wanted to get this episode done, so it's uh, a Saturday afternoon and things are rather lively on the main drag here. So you may hear some cars going by from time to time. My apologies. The sitcom soundcast Wooden Overcoats is kicking off their season two this Thursday, October 27th, so I figured it would be a great time to go ahead and drop this interview just before that happens. I got time on Skype with head writer and co-creator David K. Barnes, along with series co-creator and co-star Tom Crowley, who plays Eric Chapman on the series. Here's a little snippet of what you're about to hear a little later on. Season two has a lot more about Rudyard and Antigone, the brother and sister dynamic, uh, as siblings, as co-funeral directors in, the, in this place, and, you know, learning a lot more about each other. So that's a, a, something we really play with as a more of a, as a, I think, more of a longer emotional sort of arc in the background, which doesn't, you know, stop you from telling really fun, wacky stories in the meantime, but it just right. gives you something else for the characters to be doing. Um, and Eric, we also, I mean... Hello. So, yeah, hello, hello, Eric. I'm... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, Eric also has scenes. Um, he, uh, <laughs> um, I was so pleased. We, we have, uh... David and Tom were kind enough to give up part of their Saturday evening in London for us, which I thought was damn nice of them. Now, if you haven't caught the first season of Wooden Overcoats, you might want to binge listen that sucker before jumping into season two. Go ahead. I'll wait. And if you still haven't heard part of the first season, here's a clip from the very first episode when Rudyard Funn, the owner of Funn Funerals, and Eric Chapman, a new arrival in town, meet up for the very first time. Hello. Yes? Eric. Eric Chapman. I'm new to the place. Just arrived. Good morning. Georgie, leave it to the professionals. Good morning. We've not met. No, because I'm new. To the place. You don't need to brag about it. I've met people before. You're Mr. Rudyard Fun of Fun Funerals. Correct. Terrific name. I suppose you've put the fun in funerals. <laughs> no, of course we don't. What's obscene? Sure. 
Never mind. Well, Hello, Mr. Chapman. Oh, Jesus! Is this too close? A little bit. Sorry. Don't, don't mention it. Sorry, I'm Antigone. Sorry, pleased to meet you. Ah, likewise. Uh, call me Eric. Are you in charge? I'm the mortician, where the action is. <laughs> uh, I bet there's not much you don't know about the body of Antigone. That sounded like a double meaning. It's called flirting. Oh, gosh, is it? Well, no. No, it's lovely smashing. Do it again. Haven't made it awkward. Damn! <coughs> Haven't got all day. Yes, so uh, Rudyard, Antigone and... Georgie, hi. That's enough. Well, I saw you at the funeral, didn't I? Yeah, helping out. Georgie, don't give away company secrets. I was only... Hang on. Were you at the funeral this morning? Yes, I was. And I'm sure you were impressed with what you saw, Mr Chapman, but we really are frightfully... Actually, I wasn't entirely sure it came off. I'm sorry. For a start, it got a little bit violent, didn't it? Did you think so? At the end, yes. I'm not sure what funeral you were watching, Mr Chapman, but all I saw was good, clean mourning. Didn't someone die? A very convenient place for it to happen, Georgie. I'm not... There you go. Don't let us keep you, Mr Chapman. And I thought there could have been a greater attention to detail. Stop me if I'm getting too critical. Okay, I'll stop you there. Shut up. Carry on, Mr Chapman. Eric. Gosh. I have to say, it all looks a little bit grim. I mean, it's a funeral time, party time, but even so, I always think these occasions should be a a celebration of life rather than going on about death. Do you know what I mean? Nope. Ah, I mean, I don't want to be made even more miserable. I want to remember those happy, magnificent memories. I want a cheerful atmosphere. Bright flowers, music, funny recollections. Sweeter smelling fluids. Exactly. Fluids. I think they're very important. Sure thing. That's what I mean. Sorting out those little details. Pushing the boat out. Or the hearse out. (laughs) Well, it's just my two cents for what it's worth. Well, uh, I don't know what planet you live on, Mr Chapman, but... Thank you. We'll bear those things in mind, won't we, Rudyard? Over my death. Smashing! Anyway, I thought I'd swing by. Oh, any time. Thank you. Any time at all. Yes. I was just swinging by to see the competition. Competition? Yes. You mean like a raffle? Well, exactly. I hate raffle. It's a strange thing to hate. Anyway, I meant you lot. Uh, fun funerals, the local competition in funerals. You're an undertaker. Well, the clients prefer funeral director. You're just visiting, though. Oh, no, I live here now. I'm setting myself up. Your own funeral home? Yeah, Chapman's. Not quite as catchy as fun funerals, but there we are. <laughs> Where are you going to be? You know the antique dealer you buried? Stanley Carmichael. I'm just taking over his premises. Just across the square. That's right. Opposite you, actually. We'll probably see a lot of each other. Compare notes. Swap stories. Down the pub. (laughs) Mine's a light ale, by the way. (laughs) (coughs) Ah, uh, Did someone die in here? Goodbye, Chapman. Oh, sure. Uh, Glad to meet you, Richard. Antigone? Chapman. Georgie? See you later. That's enough. Okay. Oh. Enjoy yourselves. Oh, the sun's come out. My chat with David and Tom will be coming up in just a few moments. Elsewise, coming up this episode, we have a double dose of our Burst O'Durst segment. And that's it, really. So let's jump in with what Will is calling the Gropage Report. Hey guys, Will Durst here with a few choice words about Donald Trump and women voters. And those words are, boo, (laughs) not pretty. Cover the eyes of your children, everybody. This election has gone from PG-13 to R and is quickly headed for NC-17 with your hands over your eyes singing the la-la-la-la-la-la-I-can't-hear-you song. The king of white males says nobody has more respect for women than he does, but many members of the female population consider being grabbed by their private parts a strange way of proving it. Every time you think this election has sunk to a new low, Trump manages to dig another sub-basement. Think he's trying to tunnel the China. Someone needs to warn them. It's a sneak attack. He's coming in from below. 
The Donald shrugged off the Access Hollywood tape as mere locker room banter, encountered by inviting four Bill Clinton sexual harassment accusers to join him at the second presidential debate, where he told Anderson Cooper those were just words, not actions. He proceeded to elaborate, and though a bit murky, it sounded like the real estate developer said the reason he brags about grabbing women by the crotch is because of ISIS. Wow, they really are bad guys. Then the Clinton campaign produced four different women who charged Trump with unsolicited advances, egregious groping, and all-round creepiness. The obvious thing to do right now is for the four women of Team Trump to face off against the four women of Team Clinton in a pay-per-view steel cage match. And the winner gets Ohio. Unfortunately, the takeaway is that America is destined to place a serial groper and chronic sexual assaulter in the White House. Just depends on where you want them. Upstairs, puttering around the private residences, or behind the desk in the Oval Office. For Suckatash, the comedy soundcast soundcast, I'm Will Durst. We will have one more burst from Durst coming up after our Wooden Overcoats interview, but you can always find more from our resident political comedian and social commentator over at his home site, willdurst.com. Now, just before we get to our chat with David and Tom, there's this important message from our sponsor. Friends, at Henderson's Pants, we've noticed that adults, teens, and children are not the only ones wearing the pants in the family these days. Believe it or not, even little babies are fond of wearing a well-tailored pant now and again. But up until now, they were limited in their selection of lower body garments in that most of what is available are simply just baby pants. Baggy, shapeless, and with little to show off that fast-developing physique. Henderson's is proud to introduce Henderson's Toddler Trousers. These slick slacks are the kind of infant wear that can make even the most preoccupied paste eaters sit up and take notice. The extra layers of material in the knee and buttock help to assure hours of comfortable crawling and soft landings for when baby goes boom. And the bit of extra give in the crotch keeps your tyke from that most unsightly of sandbox no-nos, the dreaded diaper toe. Isn't it about time for Junior to crawl out in comfort and style? Henderson's toddler trousers come in a variety of luxurious fabrics, the kind found in the finest men's suits on the market today. But Henderson's serge, corduroy, and linen stock has been married with state-of-the-art polyfiber blends, which not only assure years of durable wear, but enough stretchability that today's baby will still be wearing those spiffy duds when it comes time to accept his or her diploma as your now-adult offspring graduates from high school. Originally designed for use by Hollywood's little people, jockeys, and chimpanzee astronauts, Henderson's toddler trousers are now available wherever clothes for tiny little humans are sold. That's Henderson's, makers of fine trousers and pantaloons since 1896. And now, back to Succotash. Without further ado, here is my recent conversation with David K. Barnes and Tom Crowley, both a big part of the Wooden Overcoat Soundcast. How's it going, gents? It's all right. We had a nice day. We we had lunch in a nice cafe and chatted. I had a milkshake. Wow. We're up on the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. It's good to talk to you guys. Yeah, you too. Uh, it's a pleasure. Of course, uh, David, uh, we uh, haven't spoken in, I guess, about a month and a half, right? You guys were yes. just about ready to go into season two of Wooden yeah. Overcoats. Yes. For my listeners of Succotash, uh, David K. Barnes and Tom Crowley, 
joining me from the Wooden Overcoats podcast. Hello. And uh, they are in, where are you gentlemen tonight, in London? We are in London. I'm currently in North London mm. in, uh, in my flat in, in, uh, on Holloway Road. But, you know, don't hunt me down. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you had to be that specific, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, as you know, I'm a big fan of, uh, of wooden overcoats and enjoyed the first season immensely. Can't stop talking about it. Um, but looking forward to what season two has to offer. And uh, you gentlemen have uh, just finished production or you're still in post-production? Where, where is the show at this point? It edits hell, I believe is yeah. what it's called. <laughs> Editing, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. The producers are off uh, mixing the episodes together and um, encountering all sorts of editing bugs and squashing them with uh, ruthless prejudice and, uh, yeah, getting it ready to be so, shown to the people. Yeah, I've heard um, – already heard the uh, – uh, sort of drafts, production drafts of the first couple of episodes. They're sounding very good, very, oh, very slick. Um, it takes us to be, yeah, they've got a, well, nine, nine episodes to sort of to, to put together. Um, so it's probably, you know, it's nonstop for the next few months of uh, them doing it whilst we're releasing at the same time. Um, but yeah, from what, I, what I've heard, it's sounding very good indeed. Very pleased. That's great. Well, for those uh, listeners who may be unfamiliar with the show, um, why don't you just give us a brief rundown of sort of the, the setup as, as it was for, for uh, the first season, and then we can kind of get into what, uh, what season two may, may bear. Yeah, so we David, got, this is your department. Yes, yeah, so yeah, well, um, Wooden Overcoat is, it is a, <clears throat> a sitcom about two rival funeral directors on a channel island. Um, funeral director Rudyard Fun runs a funeral home in the village of Piffling Vale. Um, it's not a particularly good funeral home, but it's the only one that anyone can use, so he gets all the business. Until the day that uh, the very handsome and sexy and charming Eric Chapman, played by the handsome, sexy and charming Tom Crowley, next Hello. to me, <laughs> on the island uh, with his own funeral home, which is miles better in every respect. The, all the islanders love him. And uh, season one followed Rudyard's attempts to try and get one over, to get rid of this man, to try and continue his business, um, aided by his uh, sister, the mortician Antigone Fun, who um, learned how to step outside into the real world and interact with people in the first season. Uh, and his assistant, Georgie Crusoe, um, who is great at everything, gets out of all sorts of problems, who uh, went out on a date with Eric, who didn't like it, and now doesn't like him. Um, <clears throat> everything away before they... It's <laughs> right. But uh, and then that's a very... And then over the course of season one, we saw those things develop, um, uh, especially the relationship between Rudyard and Antigone, as to... Uh, Antigone went from this... Uh, uh, a character who doesn't... Uh, um, who sort of lurks around in mortuary most of the time, doesn't interact, gaining more and more of power just at the same time as Rudyard is you know, going more and more round the bend and twisted mm. as the season goes on. And um, yes, I'm not sure how much of the, the end of season one I should talk about for anyone who hasn't heard it. Um, but that's, uh, that was yeah, the setup for the first eight episodes that we did last year. Excellent. And it's, I mean, it's really a, an ensemble piece as much as the, the sort of uh, Rudyardist. I guess he's sort of a center point to the story, but it's really, uh, like you said, his sister and the assistant, and uh, and then we have uh, the the young, handsome, successful <laughs> interloper, and uh, but then the really kind of piffling veil itself is uh, sort of this whole character, all of the the townspeople and uh, or village people, I suppose they are. Yes, the village people the make village a very people. prominent appearance. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, it was when we first talked about developing the idea. Mm. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you know Mark, but we, we 
originally it was me, Felix, who plays Rudyard, and David. We had a very brief meeting and talked about the, the bare bones before David took it away and, and wrote the bulk of the series. But it was very much about the basics of setting. What's what's interesting, yeah. a small enclosed community. Uh, what's the basic tension, the tensions between Eric and Rudyard, supremacy um, uh, battle for who's the best funeral director on the island. But, um, yeah, we, we talked vaguely about it would be really fun to have a extremely strong supporting cast of characters, which the sort of gold standard in my head for that is always The Simpsons. Uh-huh. Where, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You get those moments where you just think, because, I mean, they have such an enormous, I suppose the nice thing about that is you have incredibly diverse, uh, diversely talented voice actors. So you have about five actors who play all of the, the people in Springfield, yeah. but they all play about 17 different characters. But we've gone the other way and have a, very, <laughs> a huge number of visiting actors. But um, but it's wonderful, that, isn't it? Because you, you find yourself, this, the second you go, oh, we've got a Sid Marlowe-heavy episode, you go, oh, brilliant, Paul Putner will be coming in, and yeah. Alison Skilbeck and everybody else, and Andy Seacombe. Yeah. yeah. What's nice about Piffling Vale, not unlike Springfield in The Simpsons, is that Piffling Vale, although it's a it's a tiny village, can be as big as you need it to be, right? Yes. So you decide to introduce a new character or some new place or something like that, and it suddenly grows uh, a little bit more. Yeah, that, mm. that's something very early on in the first season I said to the writers, introduce anything you like. Um, sometimes it sort of fits tonally. Just if, if you think the island now needs a golf club and a golf horse um and you know a marina just throw them all in and now the island will have them and we will reuse them later or not and just throw whatever you want into it and we will make room for it one of the least useful things that you've done david uh <laughs> over the course of the show is define the island as being a mile long yes so while it was <laughs> yeah. and had all these things on it and not be very big it's now physically impossible yes well no he only said it's a mile long he didn't say how wide it was that's yeah. a good point it's incredibly long thin island yes yeah. <laughs> Whenever you step out of any building, you fall into the sea. <laughs> <laughs> so besides uh, The Simpsons, uh, what other influences sort of help shape this show? Um, for me, the, the very basic, the, the idea that um, Felix had come to me with that he and Tom had discussed was um, uh, competing funeral directors. Um, and I think originally the idea was that these two people almost had an equal status who were sort of uh, attacking each other. Um, and when I sort of had, I, at that time, I thought I, I'd be interested to write something about jealousy, especially the idea of, I mean, everyone has somebody in their lives or several people in their lives who you look at and think those people are better than me at socialising mm. or being funny or whatever. And you, you never know how to get over that. And I thought it'd be nice if the main character um, was somebody who was, you know, not very good at many of the things he did, and was not very socially outgoing, and not very, and that the other character could be almost perfect in in every way to an almost supernatural degree, this sort of perfect person. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that, I mean, that was something I was developing uh, myself anyway. But one of the influences was a sitcom, quite an obscure sitcom from the 1980s in Britain, uh, which mm-hmm. most people now wouldn't have seen or heard of called uh, Ever Decreasing Circles, which starred, oh, okay. um, and it was Richard Bryars and, and, and uh, Penelope Wilson. And, and it was, and that was a, what's, what's the Chapman one? What's he called? He's called, the actor. Uh, the, the actor was Peter Egan. Peter um, Egan, I he's so good. He's, yeah, yeah, again, and that, that, that was that kind of, what I loved in that sitcom, which is rather more sort of um, um, uh, realistic um, and it didn't have a huge cast of extra characters. It wasn't quite so wacky. You know. it, was, it was simply just a, a suburban couple living in, in, in suburbia and this new neighbour oh. who was 
beautiful. And that was the same. And so though the, the sense of humor and the style was entirely different, I've always liked the idea of the person who is very, very close to their ultimate rival. But the rival is such a good natured person that it's not a bitter. It's not two people who hate each other. It's just a totally one way. And I've always really liked that. Um, it works very well. I remember I watched the first episode of the very first series of Ever Decreasing Circles, um, partly for that sort of, I hope this isn't too close to what we're doing. And, mm. and I was like, no, it isn't really. Um, it's, um, I recommend watching it. I think it's on YouTube, the first episode. Oh, okay. It's the bleakest things I have ever <laughs> seen in my life. Small scale and petty. And Richard Bryars is so desperate to just prove himself, but not in a my business will beat your business way, just the merest point, like a, a conversational topic he wants to win that and it's the most petty depressing thing that he can do anything to, to even get yeah. a single point across in favor of this guy it's it's, it's uh, very funny but one of the bleakest things i have ever seen i mean that's my background is is i mean a lot of my comedy i used to grow up watching a lot of them are quite old so I mean, another i really liked steptoe and son from the 1960s three oh, sure. major sanford and son in the u.s that's um, right. And that one, again, you know, these two people, it's two brag uh, uh, and bone men, I think you probably just call them merchants, really, who just pick up stuff that nobody else wants. and Junk, to Junkyard guys. Junk, junkyards, yeah, yeah exactly. That's, um, and two you know, father and son who hate each other, and it's just the two of them not like each other for quite a while. And that sense of bleakness and people who have to get on with each other, um, which I find very, very funny um, <laughs> as, as, at the same time. <laughs> Uh, so a lot that's um, in the first season. I mean, um, Tom will be there when we when I Tom as well as playing Eric writes uh, has written several episodes in season mm. one and two. Um, and when we had all the writers together, um, sometimes the writers would come up with ideas or submit first draft scripts that had a happy ending where Rudyard wins or Antigone oh. wins. Or Antigone. No, no. And no. I said no. Out. <laughs> <laughs> This is the way that he loses in the final stretch or something. And he gets a potato. It will make it so miserable. I said, yes, it will. <laughs> <laughs> Early on, I learned that if you want, David, to uh, agree with a story idea you've had or an ending or a script draft, you have to make it get progressively sadder until the end of the episode where there's a chance for redemption, which is lost and it ends sadder than the series. <laughs> of course. Yeah. That's yeah. the best way to do it. Of course, yeah. that's always the best. I mean, uh, you look at things like Faulty Towers and Bottom yeah. are just these reprehensible characters who just can't catch a break and don't deserve yeah. to catch a break. <laughs> exactly. I mean, another series I loved, one of my favorites, uh, and always has been, uh, Frasier is an absolutely fantastic oh, plotting dialogue. And a lot of those episodes would also end up the characters, usually through their own flaws, like one well, of the best sitcoms, their own flaws. If, if they had done a particular action or taken a particular course of action they would have succeeded but there is something innate to them either it's pride or fear or the desire to just you know insult a person an extra time than they should have and then it all comes crumbling down it's their own fault and they <laughs> right. done it i love that i love i think everyone loves that and yeah. that's what rudyard was for me in, in wooden overcoat uh tom what's it like to have to embody the the perfect the perfection that is eric chapman <laughs> the way <laughs> This comes naturally, really. The way, the way I, genuinely, there was a sort of, it's, it's, you know, not to get into too much of the sort of wanky actor talk, but when, like, <laughs> we were very conscious because we originally had this idea, well, the main characters were 
mostly written for the actors, right? So yes, we didn't have yeah. Kira. Kira came in later. Yeah, who plays Georgia. Yeah, she yeah. was later. She was a later casting. Bethy plays Antigone we brought in pretty early on in the development process. But Felix's original idea was he wanted some way, because Felix and I knew each other as writers and mm. actors already, and we wanted some way that we could play off each other comically, because we, we thought that would be quite a, a productive thing. So then we had this question of, well, these characters have been written by David with us in mind, so how do we differentiate ourselves? Mm. And the way I, the sort of hook I gave myself early on was a bit posher than me, <laughs> uh, a bit basier, like as if he knows how to project better than I do. <laughs> just a bit further back in the throat like that. And that was sort of, and I just let it come naturally from there really. And otherwise David just gives me all the perfect things to say <laughs> on, the, <laughs> on the page. So it's uh, very easy to be perfect when you've got someone cleverer than you writing your words for you. <laughs> so well, now uh, David mentioned you, you wrote several of the episodes in the first season. How was it, how was that as a challenge to, you know, to take the characters you'd been reading up till then and, and you know, sort of take them on for yourself? Well, it was, it was interesting. I, I only wrote the one episode of series one. Uh, David oh. and I wrote two episodes of series two together. Oh, um, okay. Okay. What he meant. But, um, so he was, there to, he was there to correct every mistake you made is what you're trying to say. Absolutely, yeah, always. Uh, in this very conversation now, you can't see, but he's writing me notes. Uh, <laughs> so it was, well, I've been a writer, um, well, since I've been an adult, you know, ever since I was first involved in comedy. And so I think I sort of registered an interest in writing an episode. And the strange thing is, and this is um, something I'm sure plenty of people who've written on sitcoms would, would say, but you can know everything about the product. Like I knew who was playing who, I knew vaguely what... Uh, angle we wanted on each character and I knew what the arc of the series was and where my episode came and I had a good a good stab at it I'm quite proud of the draft I did for for episode three of series mm, one yeah. but um suddenly David when he when I'd done my drafts and David returned it everything just gelled a bit better you know and the strange thing is you can't really call that until you've heard an episode and as such it was mm. massively liberating to get to write on series two having heard series one and not only know how the characters speak who they are what they want in life but to know how the show feels how the Emperor will feel was loosened me up so so much and i think i i tend to picture the end product quite a lot uh, as a writer when i start with and not all, all writers do that but that sort of i have to be able to picture what it will be like when i'm writing and okay. uh, yeah. But the main thing about it was David is, is brilliant at and loves scenes where just it's just the characters interacting mm. and without knowing the feel of the show yet. Well, not not perfectly. That was the hardest thing to do. And if anyone's heard episode three of series one, it ends with a big set to in the cinema. And really, that is quite a long scene. I mean, it's eight to yeah, ten, minutes, ten, or minutes. Yeah. ten minutes long. And it's just the characters arguing. And I was kind of like, I remember I handed it off to David after a certain amount of time and said, I don't know, I don't know how to escalate this any further without changing the characters or, or, or without pushing them into territory that wouldn't be right for this part point in the series. And that was where I think the bulk of David's work on the episode went, really, was um, oh. fleshing that scene out. But it was amazing. It was, it was sort of a, a very enlightening thing to see the finished scene after he had a go at it and go, of, of course, yeah, I see. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things where you really kick yourself and go oh no this is why he's the head writer <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting um let's see what is it like having uh, the the main narr narrator be a, a mouse for the show yeah that was that was um when we were so when i was sort of plotting out episode one well, early on we, we realized you know, there are two ways of um you know 
Matt Madeline, as a narrator, you know, of course, gives us a lot of background information on characters where necessary. It's quite useful. The beginning of a scene, have a character say, and then they went to this place, and there's this person. Here's the background, and then you get on with the scene. And that's one of the best ways. There are two ways of providing information. You have a narrator, or you slip it all into dialogue. And normally, the best way of doing that is a new person comes in and has everything explained to them. But what I wanted was the joke to be reversed, where Eric is the new person, but gets on extremely well and capably from the very beginning. <laughs> Change everything else around him. So we couldn't have anyone explain to Eric what was going on, because he has to already know everything before it's even mentioned. <laughs> um, so we have a narrator. And I think, well, a narrator can be quite boring. How do you change it? And I wanted to have a scene in the first episode where Rudyard's best friend was a mouse, and he just talks out loud and we have a bit of squeaking mm. so you just dialogue dialogue squeak dialogue squeak and i thought that was quite nice and i was looking for a way to i thought this is the very first episode i need a way to make the listeners tune in again for a second and if we if they enjoy the second as well then we've got them and they'll hopefully listen to the rest so i need an extra sort of an extra twist something that makes them go, oh god that's quite and um first we, the, um, eric and Rajar's final scene together has a bit of a sinister undertone and you think mm. oh that's going where, which you know it does over the, the few the next two seasons and the other was i thought if we just say this person who's been speaking was the mouse from that <laughs> scene i thought that's just lovely and then i thought why is she doing it oh she wants to be the first mouse to write a sunday times best-selling book <laughs> and that also gives your narrator a reason to be talking to us and gives her, her own motivation and you know the worst thing to do when you sit down to write dialogue is for the character to have no reason for doing what they're doing. You mm. have no idea how to do it. If you've got a narrator who wants to write a book and make it salacious and exciting, <laughs> then she will highlight all the bits the listener wants to hear. And so I just found that very liberating. Is it in series one or two the bit where you're where Madeline says um, a ladybird wrote it down for me? Season two, yes. Yeah, is a, it? <laughs> every so often I keep saying you know all the scenes that she's not present at or um, couldn't physically. Couldn't be in. Yeah, and normally we, uh, we occasionally pay explanations and cut them for time, but there's one in season two which said, um, things where I were were so exciting, I couldn't leave them, but it was very exciting over there. So I talked to a ladybug and got the ladybug to write all the notes for me, and I rashed off <laughs> left some references as well, um, just because it bothers me otherwise, no one else. Well, it's interesting because uh, it's sort of, it's begun, it's established this whole sort of other world because uh, sort of in between seasons one and two, you ran some, some special shows, yes, uh, yeah. one of which was the, the Rodent Publishing <laughs> Company. Yes, that was fun. Yeah. Random House, written by uh, Rosie Fletcher. Rosie yeah. Fletcher. <laughs> the Island of Passion, wonderful scripts. God, they are great. I, the... He may not be famous in America, but Tom Tuck, who plays both Captain Sodbury and his brother, hmm. Nigel, who's reading Island of Passion after, spoilers, Captain <laughs> Sodbury's untimely death. Um, <laughs> he, he's, he's someone I've known through sketch comedy and, and the Edinburgh Fringe in the UK for a long time. And, and, and I've known Rosie since university, and I just thought her writing smut for him to read was the most perfect blend of like, <laughs> perversion. That I can possibly imagine. It's, it was, yeah, those little bit, and, and an opportunity to write these extra little bits to flesh out background characters or concepts. And you know, we, so we had the Island of Passion, which is a pornographic masterpiece, referred to obliquely in season one that we finally get to hear some of, and the Random Mouse Corporation and uh, how they choose their books and why. Referring <laughs> to an but also a good way to trail the fact that it was the, it's how we announced season two was you had this little piece of people saying, "Oh, there's this mouse who's written this manuscript," you know. Memoirs of a Funeral House Mouse. It's quite good. She wants to do a second volume. Shall we let her? Yeah, right. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> got its moments. 
we'll, we'll chuck it to all the Christmas schedule where nobody notices. And it was just a fun way of announcing. Then we did some of the others. And, um, yeah, it's been really fun, especially in season two, to take all those extra characters in the back and flesh them out more and give them a bit more to do and introduce new ones, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so the um, the second season is coming up. And mm. uh, what, uh, without giving too much away, of course, what uh, what do listeners have to look forward to? There's a great line about a ladybird. We've established that. Oh, already. that's right. Oh, yeah. So spoiler alert for that one, everybody. Joke in the season. Oh, spoiled it. We've, we've done it. Um, <laughs> for season two, uh, we've, one thing about season one was discovering what sort of stories we wanted to tell and what the tone of the show was. And it's a lot of establishing of that. So season two, I think we sort of hit the ground running. Um, even, you know, I, I listen back to a season one quite, you know, quite a lot during season two, and I'm, you know, I still think I'm very proud of all eight episodes. I think we we set up a lot very, very quickly, mm. and I, I don't think there any there's any episode in those eight which you would think, oh, this doesn't fit with the rest. Season two, though, we we whereas season one we sat down with a group of writers saying, okay, what is this series about? Season two is very much okay. We know what it's about. What else do we want to do? Here are all the toys we built them. Let's play with them mm. more. And one of the things, though, season two has a lot more about Rudyard and Antigone, the brother and sister dynamic, uh, as siblings, as co-funeral directors in, the, in this place, and, you know, learning a lot more about each other. So that's a, a, something we really play with as a more of a, as a, I think, more of a longer emotional sort of arc in the background, which doesn't, you know, stop you from telling really fun, wacky stories in the meantime, but it just right. gives you something else for the characters to be doing. Um, and Eric, we also, I mean... Hello. So, yeah, hello, hello, Eric. I'm... Yeah. <laughs> I, Eric also has scenes. Um, he, uh, <laughs> um, I was so pleased. We, we have uh, in season one established the sort of uh, Antigone having this sort of frustrated secret desire for Eric, and without again giving anything away, that's something which we explore a bit more in the second season. In the first season, it's very much a sort of a running joke, which it still is in the second, but we do a bit more of it. Some of the latest stories toward the end of the season, especially, are shaped a bit by it. Um, and on that note as well, I think do not resort to too, cliche too much, but yeah. there is a sort of raising of the stakes uh, in, <laughs> in a strange way yeah, because yeah, yeah. it's it's as silly and funny, and the plots are sort of as mad. And yeah. but there is a sense that, well, for, as an actor and sort of looking at it, well, both from in and outside, it's a, a series which allows itself to go to some slightly more, um, I would say well, I hazard to say emotionally profound places or some bigger life questions for the characters and sort of more, you know, I, I was I was saying to Felix actually while we were le- leading up to recording the final episode, but there is something kind of apocalyptic feeling. Yeah. And it's hard to define that any more clearly, but there is that sense of almost, by I feel like the final arc of series two, again, make, making no specific reference, it, it's almost like what if, there was wooden overcoats the movie what would the plot of that be yes mm-hmm. it feels like the last three or four episodes have an arc that to me suggests this is what you would do if you needed the kind of big apocalypse situation yeah that, that would need to be the plot of a sort of higher stakes movie or something which yeah. was exciting it's great to see it come together that's great um and how were uh, did you guys bring new actors into the fold for the second season or is it uh, the same same cast and revisiting characters we met in season one I mean, we got a, a lot of the um, actors from the previous season um, came back. We um, one character, the the mayor, um, we had to recast was the uh, actor, the actor who played in the first season. Steve was uh, unavailable, mm-hmm. so but another actor called um, Sean Baker, who does a fantastic job as well. Um, it's, I was you know, very excited about Sean uh, Baker, not least because well, he's in Michael Mann's The Keep, which I love, but also. Oh, okay. 
for any fans of American Werewolf in London, he's the darts player in the pub at the beginning. It's <laughs> Rick Mail. So he does a great look when uh, the Americans walk in the door. Anyway, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, he, he was amazing as well. He's like he does. He did a great interpretation of the mayor. Not necessarily. Yeah. He sounds a lot like uh, Steve's performance, his, his vocal quality, but he did a different performance of the same character in yes. a strange way. Oh, it was sort of complementary and contrasting in a really nice way. It's yeah. such, a, uh, such a saving... It was, yeah, it was really it was terrific. Um, and a lot of the... You know, we won't give away too many of the returning characters, but for instance, the vicar, of course, played by, uh, Reverend Waveland, played by Andy Seacombe, yeah. um, returns and has even more to do this season. It's absolutely terrific whenever... I mean, sometimes you just write extra scenes for him <laughs> and get him to the studio. Um, uh, Agatha Doyle, the, the, the sweet shop owner oh, yeah. slash policewoman, has adventures <laughs> as well. Because um, again, Alison, somebody who I've uh, who we adore working with, who also um, back in the day um, originated several roles in the theatre for my favourite playwright, uh, Alan Akebourne. Um I'm oh. not sure if, uh, how famous he was in America. I know some of the shows, like The Norman Conquest, did transfer, but he's um, he tends to write about one or two plays every year and has done since 1965. Oh. They're all very funny, and she originated lots of roles for him oh, wow. in. In the seventies, 1970s, I think, including mm. one of my favourite comedy plays, uh, Just Between Ourselves, and uh, and then suddenly I'm writing scripts where she's in, and she's again. It, it, one, one thing that's wonderful about this series is that um, the main uh, writing dialogue for the main cast is terrific, and then we have these you know, mm. guest characters come in, all wonderful actors, uh, who you just get to sort of play with for a, for you know a few afternoons, you know, give them extra dialogue. It's really fun to work with them. They all seem to have a great time, which is handy. Um, and for new characters, we do also, I mean, we've got some extra, some new guest, uh, guest star characters who pop up for one or two episodes. Um, some of them are played by actors, uh, I'm not sure, actors who may again, not be especially well known to an American audience, but a sort of cult uh, UK television oh, okay. actor. Mm. Uh, Hugh Fraser, who uh, appeared in, who played at Captain Hastings in Poirot. Um, I was very excited. Good yeah. God. Oh, it's <laughs> Funny. Not least because he turned up and was exactly as funny and as nice. <laughs> on, yeah, if you're familiar with Poirot, it's yeah. uncanny how, He's wonderful. how nice he is. Uh, we've also yeah. got um, uh, uh, Katie Manning, who, who appeared in Doctor Who. She was a Doctor Who assistant oh, in the yeah. 90s. For any Doctor Who fans listening, uh, for any Jonathan Creek fans listening, um, uh, uh, Carolyn Quentin appears in one of our episodes. We also have I mean, one thing about Wooden Overcoats, especially with with both seasons that we've always liked is having a mixture of uh, sort of uh, a, you know actors who are sort of I don't want to say starting out these are actors actually you know, have been working quite consistently for a while but you know still relatively unknown to a wider public but exceptional mm. performers got younger performers only sort of older performers have been doing lots of different pieces all over the place for years you have comedians who are quite well known on the, on the London UK circuit um, you also have um, and there's some of those actors who have appeared in quite well known projects and we all come together. Mm. And it's like everyone feels feels in the studio like everyone's equal. We're just all enjoying ourselves equal. And all these the guest you know guest actors will get involved in crowd scenes where they're just yelling nonsense all at each other for about yeah. ten minutes. And it's just a lot of fun to watch as well as listen to. It's the first time we've opened up uh, to open auditions as yes, well. Yes. Oh really? Okay. Some casting calls out, which was it was a wonderful process. I mean, there were some logistical issues, mostly based around the fact that mainstream casting 
uh, websites and listing places don't really know what the internet is but uh, <laughs> besides that, it was lovely the actual process of auditioning people was was wonderful and um I, as always in any sort of audition context it was incredibly difficult to pick the, the people we went with but just fantastic to open that process up and yeah. see how many people had different interpretations of the characters and really nail-bitingly difficult decisions yeah. in a lot of cases but we we certainly found a bunch of who worked really well together and you'll, you'll hear them all in series two and we do have one, one of them uh, the new characters who we didn't uh, open casting for um, is, a, is a new regular for season two, yeah. um, which we hope that people will enjoy. Um, who is uh, Jennifer Delacroix of uh, Piffling FM? We have a radio now that no one okay. listens to. Um, and uh, this eager, happy journalist uh, played by uh, Alana Ross, who is now a regular, sort of appears in the early in the new season, then appears um, uh, as a recurring character. Uh, so we do have, uh, as well as new guest characters, we have a few new recurring characters. Uh, I'm in it myself, actually. Wow. <laughs> okay. I'm a doctor. I'm a very, I'm a very tired man. You've been in it before. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I know, I know that character. <laughs> a very tired man who's sick of the nonsense going on around him, and I enjoy playing that very much. The <laughs> <laughs> odd cameo here and there. One scene. In fact, one scene I wrote myself. I just show up. I give the main characters a huge ticking off for annoying me, and then I leave. I <laughs> well, you've ruined the ending now. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler again. Um, speaking of the sort of the, the difficulty of casting due to the medium, has it been easier moving into season two, trying to explain to people what a, a podcast is, or actually I've been trying to coin the term soundcast to replace podcast because I'm tired of, tired of giving Apple their, uh, their, their due. I understand the logic. Well, no, it's, it's, it's funny because I think, well, we, we, uh, we were in a post-serial world, so people were already more aware of what it was and how to find it. Even if people were just listening on their uh, computers at home, people had some facility for understanding what that was. What we found, oddly, is that, um, well, at first, we, we had friends and family who we had to kind of literally put in front of the computer. Okay, click on the listen button. Now, <laughs> click on the play button. Now, you haven't turned the speakers on. Turn the speakers on. But what's interesting is... is it's the freeing. It's the freedom of the the medium is the yeah. main thing we've seen since series one. Is how many international fans we've found. I say fans. That's a bit grandiose. Listeners, listeners, listeners. listeners. regular listeners. <laughs> they may all have hated it. <laughs> they may see the number of people worldwide who've just found it either because they're just browsing on iTunes or they've been recommended it by somebody, and it's it's very much a medium where there's a, there's a huge established listener base. And they want to find more good stuff. And that's the really exciting thing is just pushing it towards people and they lap it up. It's great. And it's, I mean, it's just far more, well, it's very liberating. It, it I'm took, just saying the same word no, in different it's, ways. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> what, what, I know podcasts are still a, a better known medium in America than, mm, than here. True. Um, and so one thing in the UK is still, I, I think people have a few favorite um, sort of uh, podcasts, uh, soundcasts they listen to. Um, on a regular basis, uh, but in, and uh, but don't necessarily m- maybe find newer ones so much. So we're mm. still trying to sort of break through that and get become uh, better known in in our own country. I think lately um, we have more now you know increased downloads in the US compared to the UK. Yeah. Um, but that's sort of, you know that when we launch the new episodes, obviously that will change um, to an extent. But I think that's the thing is that podcast is still and for some many people it still feels like an infant medium or a medium that people are still discovering. Yeah. Which I suppose to us, you know, if you come along and you've never heard of podcast and then you suddenly go, "What is this?" and then you have so much choice and yes, so much to explore, yeah. it can be 
quite overwhelming, but I suppose quite exciting as well. And mm. even between seasons one and two, new podcast series have started and all over the place. Um, yeah. yeah, no, it's a tremendously exciting medium. To, it's also good to be able to just sit down, write something and know that it will be recorded and released to an audience. Right. Well, that's John, that this note. Um, I remember when, um, when Felix and I first talked about the idea before it was a podcast and before it even involved, involved David, we were, he was just talking about how, especially when you work in, in theater or you work or if you're trying to pitch for television or radio or anything, the, the thing you encounter the most often is, you know, I know writers who we talked about this earlier today. Mm, yeah. and we know writers who have been celebrated for their writing and have had nothing made. Yes. And it's such a shame because invariably they're great writers, but it's not, it's so often, especially with, with younger writers and people just starting out in, in comedy and, uh, well, and drama and theater yeah. and everything, you find that they'll, work hard and produce a lot and have had nothing on because the logistics of convincing people to make something is so difficult. So, yeah. I mean, that's one great thing about podcasting is you know, the costs vary depending yeah. on how good you want it to sound, how big a cast you need and all this, but it's something you can, without too much difficulty and very few impediments actually get made. Yeah. Yeah. That's but, one of the most amazing thing I think. And I think it's, I think now, you know, they've been around for a little over a decade people are beginning to discover that sitting in a room talking to some people sort of like we're doing is sort of the, the low cost uh, sort yes. of entry, right? I mean, we're just having a conversation. And so now things like wooden overcoats, these narrative shows are beginning to find their footing. And that's what's mm. beginning to really sort of ratchet, ratchet up the, the interest. Uh, something like serial comes out and all of a sudden people go, I haven't ever heard this long form journalism before yes. that sort of thing and then you guys have wooden overcoats and there's a number of fictional narrative shows coming out i just uh, the show previous to this one i just talked to the the, the guys be, uh, behind my dad wrote a porno yeah. oh <laughs> yes absolutely and yeah, that's a show that's done uh, tremendously well over here as well and it is it's very funny it's a show that i think most people can just it, again it's I think a lot of things, they live and die by uh, the sort of concept. If you can summarize what you're doing very quickly, so people go, oh, good, I know what that is, I want that. Yes. And that is, my, you know, my father's written some pornography and I found it. It's awful. Shall we read it publicly? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they kind of, um, and they did some live shit. We did, there was a London podcast festival. Yes, yeah. Very recently, um, which went very well, I believe, for everyone concerned. And uh, they, they had some sellout shows. People really enjoyed it. We had a show that went tremendously well. We talked to listeners. We had listeners coming down from up the country. It was great. I've got to give credit to Zoe Jays at the mm. King's Place venue in mm. King's Cross uh, in London because she programmed the whole thing. We were hugely pleased to be asked by oh, her. God, and, yeah. yeah, and it was one of those things where being a festival, you never know whether it's going to be just friends and family and, you know, established listeners to the show or if people are really going to congregate. And people really did. And yeah. while, you know, I, I, I did a – I asked at the beginning of the gig – has anyone not heard the show before? And two people cheered and clearly had just turned up on a whimmy because their friend oh, brought it. Yeah. <laughs> because it's like, oh, that looked good in the listings. So we yeah. came along. But it was, it was an yeah. amazing turnout of um, someone came down from Aberdeen in Scotland. Yes, oh, indeed. Yeah, was there, was, there was some consternation in Los Angeles because it was happening the same weekend as the Los Angeles Podcast Festival. Oh. Uh, and uh, I don't know, there's an uh, English podcast producer named George Grimwood who uh, came over for the LA Festival and he was... Uh, really sort of disappointed that he couldn't be at, you know, both of them at once, especially since he's, he's from London. So he felt like he was kind of missing out on the home team, but uh, hopefully they'll get their schedules worked out for the, the next year. But I heard it was pretty successful, which is great. 
It was great. It's actually, I believe it was a, a pretty big smash hit for them in terms of sales and coverage and stuff. They had a great time. I mean, it's, it was a wonderful thing to see happen, not least because uh, we got to be in it, but also because it was a sort of sign that it is being more widely respected and widely you know, broadcast as a medium. It's 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 understood better in, in this country. And, well, it feels like more and more people are picking up the baton of trying to create great ones over yeah. here. And that's a wonderful scene to be a part of and to kind of, I suppose have a bit of a head start on in this country because yeah. there aren't that many in production. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. I mean, it's I was a fan of sort of old-time radio when I was a kid growing up. Uh, just there was a radio station here that played the old radio shows yeah, from, you know, right. 40 years before or whatever. But I – so I did some more research. And it, radio started out a lot like podcasting. Everyone had radio stations. I mean, they could only, like, you know, broadcast down the block. They didn't have any power. Um, but everyone did it. And then the FCC started you know, slicing and dicing up the airwaves and sort of leasing them to people that could afford them. And all of a sudden, all those little radio stations began to fall away. So it leads me to wonder what's going to happen as podcasting evolves, because there's more and more podcast networks happening now. Shows are beginning to sort of gravitate towards one or a, a, one of those. Yeah. So, it, and of course, then once those start generating more interest and more money, then the corporations are going to go, oh, wait a second, what what is this podcast thing? Yeah. Mm. There is a sort of, uh, I mean, we're still in the, relatively early days of the internet, but that's something, I mean, the good side of the, um, the hideous, uh, libertarian dark web is, um, <laughs> there is a sense of, 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 freedom sort of at any cost when it comes to the internet, partly because, um, it's the nature of the medium. It's an immediately accessible information, which has been, has had its problems, but has broadly been an extremely good thing for humanity. And I think that in terms of the arts, it's the same thing. Like it, it's, with any internet content, you find that the people who have a lot of money behind them, big budgets and uh, lots of distribution power, they'll maybe do the best and they'll generate the most income from it. But then you look at something like YouTube uh, and even in the advent of Netflix and stuff, that's still kind of a completely open game. And, you know, the biggest YouTuber in the world is, is PewDiePie or PewDiePie, <laughs> I can't remember. And he's... You look at me as if I know. I have any idea what <laughs> Come on, David. Sorry. You know you love PewDiePie. Sorry, David, to the man of born, to the man of born. To the man of born. Uh, right, okay, so yeah. fine, fine. Good. Are you back in your company? I am now. Great. <laughs> anyway, it's just a guy who talks about video games. And there is that sense that it's harder to predict what will do well yes. on the internet. And now that we have an instantly accessible material. And the, the funny thing is as well, though, that the big podcast networks, I mean, I, I have very little experience personally of many of them, but um, a lot of them seem to be taking a chance on quite weird stuff. Yeah. Um, there's a, a podcast that I love called the Beef and Dairy Network. Yes. Which I Loved and then got to be in a couple of, which is amazing. <laughs> so pleased. Um, he, it's a guy called Ben Partridge. Who's, uh, he's written a lot for Radio 4 over here. Uh, he's also done some solo shows at the Fringe, though he hasn't performed himself that much until recently. And um, because he knows Colin Anderson, who originally mm. worked at BBC Radio Comedy and then produced some shows over here, he went to Max Fun. Uh, I'm assuming that that was the connection, but Colin sort of essentially bullied him into joining the bigger <laughs> network, whereas Ben is his crazy hobby. And it's kind of lovely to think that he's got a bit of support, given that he just makes it all himself. Mm. He just wanders around with a shotgun mic and records weird sketches about beef. Yeah, there, and there, there's, another, there, there's another series uh, being done in England called Man by Cow. I don't know if you've Oh, yes. Mm. And I, I, yeah. inter I interview those guys. I love, love just – I mean, they do everything themselves. They do their own music. They taught themselves how to play instruments just so they could do the music for their show. 
That sounds oh, wow. like a much more. I mean, a lot of the shows that we're looking at, there, you know, it's a group of a few people, and therefore costs are kept low. Um, I mean, we, we seem to have a production team of around about sort of forty to fifty people. <laughs> wow. Who, yes. uh, season two, all of, you know, all of you, we, we, you know, we, we raised money so we could pay people, you know, some money for what they were doing, and it's uh, we sort of have gone down in many ways the wrong way of doing it. <laughs> But we're still very glad to have done so because it's resulted in meeting some wonderful people. And like the music we have is we have a, a, as an orchestra of about eleven to twelve, I think maybe more than that, mm. musicians um, led by a composer called James Whittle, who's fantastic. Mm. Yeah, the music's amazing on the show. I love it. Yeah, We've yeah. got lots of even mm. lots of new music for this coming season as well. I've heard some. It's it's amazing. It's, it's terrific what happens. And you, you know, I, I didn't expect that when we started off with this idea for a sitcom. I didn't think we'd have our own orchestra. You know. <laughs> You know, I'm sure a lot of uh, most podcasts can get by without it at their own orchestra. <laughs> but I'm really glad that we, we, we've done that. Um, it's a very different way of doing things. I, I think we looked at the market for podcasts and we thought uh, the best way to do this is to uh, increase the costs as much as possible. As <laughs> <laughs> few episodes per year as possible. Yes. <laughs> by having a traditional old-fashioned British sitcom formula. Yeah. Brilliant. That's brilliant. Look at what, why aren't there enough episodes? It's because it's a British po- it's a British yeah. sitcom, <laughs> which means that there are only about eight episodes per season. Yeah, <laughs> um, but it's it's uh, that's indulgently many by British. Oh standards. yeah, normally you get five or six, and we go mm. eight. You know, we've gone we've, on Radio Four, four. Yes, <laughs> we've gone mad. Yeah, we've gone mad. What's it been like stepping out of the medium when you've done live performances? What is what's that experience like by comparison? Just enormous indulgent fun. I mean, I mean yeah. that's, that's what it's like. Yes, I mean, the scripts get altered a bit because, you know, we, we try to ramp down some of the sound effects, make it a bit easier. Because, you know, um, John and uh, Wakefield, Andy Goddard, our producers, they, they spend a long time um, making the podcast, putting in uh, lots of levels and, and, and the background atmosphere and the, the effects. And there's a lot go- there's a lot goes into, into each episode on the production standpoint. Um, and so we strip that back a bit for the, for the live shows. But it, it, that's when you just have a, a room with a lot of people there to have a good time the actors on a stage and it is it's just like going you know it's like going to a, a, a radio recording probably more informed room smaller but it's a lot of yeah it, it's just a great it's deal great. of fun doing I, I was lobbying for the live reading gigs uh, very early on mm. uh, well we were talking about making our costs back and stuff and i thought live performances would be a great way to sell tickets and you know mobilize all the listeners to come and see us do the show yeah but partly because i was a huge fan of throwing adventure hour oh, and uh, yeah. Yeah, and I just love the um, the atmosphere and the sense of that. You know, you're in a club, you're an adventure cateer, You know, <laughs> Tiffler is the best equivalent I've thought of, but I don't think we've gone with that officially. <laughs> but I just, yeah. Now I think there were a couple of shows you did where um, the you you took on the Rudyard part, Tom. Correct. Just one, just one off. And how was? But it's been. What was that experience like? Playing uh, playing the, your opposite. Yeah, <laughs> well, it was really fun. Um, the strange thing was, um, I don't want to go into too much elaborate detail for people who have no idea what else we're doing, but uh, I, I also run a theatre company, and Felix has written a, a one-man play, which we did for a month at a theatre called The Old Red Lion, and uh, which was a very different beast to Wooden Overcoats. It's, it's a sort of a magical realist one-man sort of horror monologue thing, um, which is great fun. But we had just done the first ever performance of it, at the first preview in the theatre, <laughs> So we performed the, uh, me and Felix both, who'd both been working flat out for the previous three weeks on this play, um, immediately after the first performance ended. Half an hour later, went straight into doing the switcheroo gig. As we, <laughs> and we were so, like, we were still wired from the adrenaline yeah. of getting the show up. So we had a great time, and it was so much fun. 
But I just, it's a blur <laughs> in my memory. <laughs> I remember watching it. It was terrific energy. I mean, oh, because, yeah. because, you know, because you know, Rudyard as a character, I mean, one thing, Rudyard as a character is so very, you know, he gets so angry and quite frequently, and Felix injects a huge amount of energy to do it. And normally each episode, of course, is half an hour and there's a break. But for this gig, we had two episodes, but slammed oh, into, into one consistent yeah. narrative. Cut out the core credits in the minute. I, in the middle, I wrote a new sort of short scene to bridge them. So it was about one hour mm. of solid of just doing it. And so by the end, Tom was sort of nearly fainting on his feet, doing all this terrific, absolutely terrific sort of energy to try and get. Whilst Felix, of course, was just standing there, very cool and calm for the whole thing. Finally, getting to be Eric, um, probably you know very happy after the sort of the show, the big intense show. He just had to do moments yeah. before. Very, very cool. Looking at the audience, smiling a lot, just having a lovely time watching Tom go absolutely ragged. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. With so much fun being Roger. I mean, Felix was very sexy evil. Yes. I would say. It's more of an evil Chapman. Yeah. I, I remember thinking he was a Chapman who would definitely play tennis. He <laughs> <laughs> came across like, I bet you play lots of tennis. Yeah. And yeah. I, that, no, that was a terrific thing to watch. It was really fun. Absolutely. It was really fun. Uh, that's great. So what, what other than the, the theater company you mentioned, what other sort of things are, are you guys involved with outside of uh, the wooden overcoats experience? Oh, well, bits of writing and acting and stuff for mm. me. Bits of little bits of theater directing here and there. I do lots of uh, mainly so wooden, especially for this year, wooden overcoats season two has been the main one mm. um, and the piffling lives short series we did getting that. But um, otherwise I'm also a playwright. I, I've got, I've got a play on, uh, in, um, in London next year. I'm not sure how, if it's been officially announced. Um, perhaps it hasn't, I shouldn't say. But uh, I had a few... <laughs> too late. I, um, I had a few plays on last year. Remember, Dividing Wooden Overcoats, I had a few short, short comedies, mainly sort of stage, uh, stage comedy, stage dramas. Um, uh, currently, I've been trying to play... Having been doing non-stop Wooden Overcoats this year, I'm trying to sort of take a couple of months off to just work out what I'm doing again. But I've got a few scripts on board for next year um, for production. Um, looking into other potential, uh, even potentially new uh, new podcast series, and oh, looking okay. at other things I could do. Um, I should talk about that as well, shouldn't I? Yeah, you should probably talk about podcast series. Oh yeah, sorry. Yes, we were also working at the moment uh, on um, this. hasn't really been properly announced yet, but we're going to hopefully be producing something. Uh, I, I won't say who's involved yet, but we're going to be doing some kind of a digest show, which oh, okay. is being a bit of a This American Life for fiction. Uh, <laughs> Okay. Not as free, uh, frequently released because we haven't got um, NPR's resources, but hopefully something of a, a similar production quality and uh, that's somewhere in the same region of, well, uh, of motivating a conversation around a theme. But okay. in this case, clearly a theme theme around um, one new stories and how they're made, basically. But um, I'll tell you, I may as well tell you the name of it. It's called Story Etc. And we're hoping to launch it uh, very soon after the new year. So okay. if anyone's looking for a new series with some interviews and some radio plays and things. It's worth looking out for that. Sounds very intriguing. Mm. Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, gentlemen, I want to thank you for taking time out of your Saturday evening to, uh, to talk to me and our Succotash listeners. Uh, yep. greatly, look, greatly looking forward to uh, season two of Wooden Overcoats. And when, uh, when does the first episode drop, as they say? This, this coming Thursday, this coming the 27th Thursday. of October. Yeah. How exciting. Very exciting. New episode every Thursday after that. Mm. Uh, and yeah, this, uh, there'll be uh, sort of eight new episodes. And the last episode, I won't say what happens, in, but it's leave, it's a bumper length episode, the last one in episode eight. So there's a lot uh, still to come over the next eight weeks. Mm. Excellent. Also, 
Christmas special wise, uh, Kickstarter oh. backers will already have the Christmas special coming to them. But it's possible, yeah. I won't say too much, but if you keep an eye on our Twitter, at uh, OvercoatsWooden, there may be some explanation of ways you might be able to get a hold of it if you did miss the Kickstarter campaign. Well, I'm glad I did not miss the Kickstarter campaign. So, <laughs> you. so yeah. be looking yeah, forward to that. You have mm. half an hour of Wooden Overcoats Christmas goodness, and it will be just as depressing as all the rest of it. <laughs> I'm delighted to say so. It's been great speaking with you, and uh, best of luck with the second season. Very excited for you. Great speaking to you as well. And yes. Uh, bye-bye, Succotash. Goodbye, Succotash. I'd like to thank my guests, David K. Barnes and Tom Crowley, for their time. The premiere drop of the second season of Wooden Overcoats again is this Thursday, October 27th. You can find the show on their home site, woodenovercoats.com, as well as on the Laughable app, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever fine soundcasts can be streamed and or downloaded. I think we'll put off dipping into the tweet sack again for another week. Sorry, Tweety. And instead, let's have Mr. Durst give us one last blast before we kick our way out of your ears. Hey, guys. Will Durst here with a few choice words about presidential wannabes trying to be funny. And those words are, God, no, please, stop. The day after the third debate at the annual Al Smith dinner at the Waldorf Astoria, the two major party candidates were both invited to tell some jokes. And to say the results were underwhelming is like inferring that gravel dusted with uranium flakes makes a lousy dessert topping. Donald Trump has the timing of an end table. And Hillary Clinton couldn't tell a joke if the life of a small Haitian child depended on it. Also, neither demonstrated any idea how to respond to being heckled. So, as a trained professional, it is my great honor to give the two a few classic lines to choose from, should the occasion arise again. Oh yeah? Well, if you're so smart, how come I'm going to be president? I'm sorry, sir. Are you a Republican? I'll talk slower. Nice shirt. Somewhere in Peoria, there's a pinto without seat covers. Is that your face, or are we celebrating Halloween early? Further proof why you shouldn't play football without a helmet. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. Are you a Democrat? I'll talk slower. Can anybody here speak Quaalude? Excuse me, sir. Your village called. They want their idiot back. Usually, when people donate their brain to science, they wait till they're dead. Another example of why political consultants eat their young. I'm sorry, sir. The moron convention met yesterday in Jersey. Isn't it a shame when Hillary supporters marry? Do you talk to your third wife with that mouth? I understand a bus is leaving for your hometown soon. Why don't you and the Donald get under it? For Succotash, the comedy soundcast soundcast, I'm Will Durst. If hearing Will on our show is not quite enough for you, feel free to follow him at Will Durst on Twitter. You can follow us there as well, you know, at Succotash Show on Twitter. And if you retweet us or uh, if you uh, favorite us or anything like that, I'll mention you, I promise, in an upcoming episode during the TweetSack segment. That's going to do it for Epi 142. Thanks again, as always, for listening. Please be sure to rate and review us on iTunes if you get a chance, as well as on Laughable, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. You can even give us a thumbs up now on YouTube. That's right. You can hear Succotash via YouTube. Also, we're now on iHeartRadio. If you want to help us out in a very real and monetary sense, you can click the Donate button on our home site, SuccotashShow.com, or use the Amazon banner there to do your online shopping. They will give us a little taste of that action. 
Finally, whatever you do, wherever you go, please be sure to pass the succotash. Goodbye. You've been listening to Succotash, the comedy soundcast soundcast, with your host, Mark Hershon. Brought to you by Henderson's Pants and... Imagine your company's name right here. Find us on the web at SuccotashShow.com, on iTunes, on Stitcher Smart Radio, on SoundCloud, and on Ha Ha Ha, the laughable app. You can also hear us streaming and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Suckatash Show. Email us at marc at SuccotashShow.com. Or call into the Suckatash hotline at our non-toll-free call number, 818-921-7212. You can also upload clips from your favorite comedy soundcasts directly to us using our direct upload link at Hightail.com slash you slash Suckatash. Suckatash is produced and engineered with the kind assistance of Joe Paulino through the auspices of Studio P. Sausalito, home of the hit. Our associate producer is Tyson Sainer. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is Kenny Turges. Until next time, I am your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please pass the Suckatash. Goodbye. Goodbye.